do we have uh, do we have some questions to begin with or comments? Perhaps something that came to mind as a result of our talk last night. You are such a quiet group. <laughs> yes. Um, <clears throat> during the sitting meditation, uh, when we close eyes, but internally we still uh, it, it seems right, see inside. Mm-hmm. So, which direction our eyes should be to the front or the mm. downside? What uh, what usually is best is, uh, you know, if you, you have your eyes closed, but since you're observing the sensations of the breath, you imagine that you, you, you were looking at them. And what that will mean, of course, to see the tip of your nose, you'd have to have your eyes in a very awkward, uncomfortable position. But uh, your eyes should be uh, aimed somewhat downward, so that uh, maybe at a point that was maybe six or eight inches in front of your nose, that's a, that would be a fairly natural and relaxed position for your eyes. You'll find while you're meditating that sometimes the position of your eyes changes. You might find sometimes that you're looking up, you know, your eyes are rolled up. And it's interesting to notice it makes a big change if you just bring them back to your natural position. You'll feel more relaxed and, and calm when that happens. Yes? In the sutta, is it said, um, at least in Chinese version, uh, if I understand correctly, so, um, the sutta said we should bring the um, um, meditation object, for example, the sensation of breath, to the front. So, does it mean that we should look at? So, because as Anna knows that if I look, as you, maybe you, the direction as you described, mm-hmm. so like this, um, it's easy to focus. Yes. If my eyes will be go away, run away, then mostly my mind also go away. Yes, yes, yes. So that's 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 why it's best to have your eyes in this natural position, focused in front. But you said something about in the Chinese text. You said to 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 bring the focus of the eyes to that spot. Is that what you were saying, or to bring the the to imagine the sensations were occurring in that place. Not quite sure. I didn't check it, there. but uh, it said to bring that in front of you. Oh, to bring it. Well, you know, in the uh, what it says in the uh, in the sutras, uh, in each of those places where uh, this is described, you know, that the uh, one goes to the forest, to the root of a tree, or an empty house, and so on, and sits down and places his mindfulness in front of him. That's the exact words in the, uh, the way, well, the English translation of the exact words. He places his mindfulness in front of him. And there's been much debate over the centuries as to, you know, uh, what that might mean. <clears throat> I think in the, the, the simplest way to take it is that he places mindfulness uh, uh, at the forefront of, uh, of what is taking place in terms of mental activity. But it also corresponds to... This is often used as a, uh, an explanation for... You know, one, one of the list of reasons why the sensations of the breath at the nose is, is the meditation object to use, because it says this in the sutras. 
you know, uh, that uh, when you place your attention before you, the presumption is that that you're looking at the, the tip of the nose or, or that area. Uh, these things are interesting, but they're not terribly important in and of themselves. The fact that you can quickly verify for yourself that you already have verified for yourself is that the natural position of the eyes that corresponds to the best mental focus is one that is at this point a few inches in front of the nose. That's most comfortable, most relaxed, and and where the mind is most focused. And also, although it isn't literally the case, it gives you that feeling as though you're actually looking at the place where the sensations are that you're observing. Now, if you're observing the sensations rising and falling at the abdomen, interesting thing is the same eye position still gives you the same feeling that you're looking at the abdomen surface as it rises and falls. <laughs> so, bottom line, yes, that's a really good place to put your eyes. And if you find that they've drifted, just bring them back to there. It will, it will usually be somewhat helpful. So... Okay, in my experience, I say uh, the point of view not where you put eyes is your um, because of a concentration. Mm-hmm. Is it right? Yes, because your eyes are closed, where they are isn't materially important to the process. It's where your attention is that's really important. It's just that there is a position for your eyes that is most comfortable and corresponds to being able to rest the attention most easily. Yes. So, and sometimes, you, as I say, you find that your eyes will move to a different position. And if you notice that, what I find is that by bringing that back to that point, it does, it has a beneficial effect. You know, it's, it's maybe subtle, but it, it really is helpful to bring it back to that position. Uh, yes. So even even with my eye closed, uh, very often I still see white light. Yes, that's not unusual, and uh, for uh, many people, not everyone, as their concentration deepens, that inner light becomes more intense and, and, and a more significant part of the meditation experience. So uh, and. It's often described as, uh, uh, it's, it's one of the uh, phenomena that develop as concentration deepens and described as a part of, of, of piti. Um, there's a constellation of physical sensations that uh, correspond to uh, the unification of the mind and the developing of strong concentration. And they are... Uh, Usually one of the first is, is uh, an inner sound, like a ringing or buzzing in the ear, or sometimes even uh, something very pleasant, but usually more just a ringing or a buzzing. And not everyone has it. And uh, the second is that there is a, the, the body feels very light and, and very comfortable and very pleasant. And often, uh, Two things. Often it seems like the body no longer has any substance, that it's just like a surface or a shell that's empty inside. Uh, uh, you know, not always, but that's often the case. 
And the other thing many people experience is feeling that their body is in some other different position than it actually is. Sometimes it's just a feeling like you're tipping over, and then if you check, you're not really tipping over. Uh, but sometimes you feel as though, you know, uh, all of a sudden you realize that, oh, it feels like my arm's behind my back instead of in my lap, you know, strange things like that. Um, but usually the, usually those, all of those sensations, eventually they come together in just a feeling of the body being hardly noticeable but very pleasant. Uh, with the eyes, uh, for those people that have that uh, light experience, it will uh, it will become stronger and more intense. Sometimes it starts out as a point that gets larger. Sometimes it just starts out as, as a diffuse light that becomes brighter. Sometimes it has color and sometimes it doesn't. But <clears throat> as it develops, usually it comes to a point where it you know your eyes your eyes are closed, but it's as though there's this vast inner space that's completely illuminated by this light, and, and that may very well be what you're experiencing, or the beginning of that. Illuminated or eliminated? Illuminated, okay. yeah. It's basically eliminated, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> illuminated, yeah, lit up. Okay. It's described as the all-pervading light. Uh, interesting thing is some people feel as though the light has a source, and they feel it's coming out of their heart or their chest. And some people may feel as though it's coming from a point above their head. And I've always found it very interesting how, uh, how closely these descriptions correspond to the iconography of many different religions, Christian and Buddhist and, and other religions, that they depict uh, uh, sainted figures as having you know, a, a light coming from their chest or a light from above their head. So, and I think there's a relationship with that. The interesting thing about this, that when I first started teaching meditation to others, I have, I have an all-pervading light that I experienced that is almost white, but it's like a very, very pale uh, lavender, very close to being white. Some people have brilliant white and different things like that. But when I first started teaching meditation to other people, it seemed like almost everybody that I was working with at a certain point would experience light. And so I thought, well, I had it, everybody else had it, this is universal. I and mean, since then, you know, more recently, almost everybody I'm teaching rarely has the light, or they just have it in a very um, less strong form. Which uh, I, I found interesting, but the other thing I've noticed is that most of the people that don't experience a really strong sensation of light do experience a very strong sensation of energy, like electricity moving through their body, or like vibrations moving through their body. And I'm not certain, but maybe after I talk to another hundred or so people, I'll decide whether this is always the case, that the more bodily energy you experience, the less light you experience, or vice versa. I'm not sure. It's a curious thing. We're all a little bit different, though. And so we all don't, we all won't have necessarily the same meditation experiences in that regard. Long answer, short question. Yeah, that's a sign of concentration. Thank you. You're welcome. Excuse me. Next question? Other questions?
feels of mine too. Um, you teach us just a feel of breath. Mm-hmm. I cannot find my nose. Mm-hmm. I just, while I breathe, inhale, I feel the light just expand. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, just... It just sort of expands and contracts yeah, as you I don't do. have the limit with the body and... Yeah. and Yes, I know what you mean. Like, like I said, it's, that's like like there's this huge space inside behind your eyelids that you don't know where you are in it, but there's a light there. Yeah. Uh, I, what I should tell you is when these things happen, whether you feel the energy currents, whether you feel whether you have sounds or light and things like that, uh, they're intriguing. Uh, but it's best to just continue doing the practice and let them develop on their own uh, if, if they're going to. You can become fascinated by them. Mostly when you direct your attention to them before they're strongly developed, they'll just tend to dissipate and disappear. And then when they come back, every time you go chasing after them, it tends to make them disappear again. But. Uh, there's no real value in trying to, to chase after them. Just let them develop their uh, natural part of the process and uh, keep doing the practice which caused them to come up. Some of the sensations are, are pleasant um, and uh, that is, that's a good thing, but you don't need to be attached to the pleasantness. Sometimes the sensations are not so pleasant. If you feel that energy moving, it may feel like it reaches a block, and when it reaches a block, that may not be comfortable, it may not be pleasant. Or sometimes people have chills and uh, uh, other sensations, uh, itches and tickles and things like that, that are not necessarily so pleasant. But for all of these things, just don't move, uh, just notice that it's there, let it be there, and go back to your practice as before. And in, in, in that way, they will just deepen your practice. So it's not for the sensory distortion. What's that? Is this kind of sensory distortion? It's a, it's a kind of sensory distortion, but actually, I think what it is, it's more as it, it's, a, it's a shutting down of the normal sensory processing and then the normal sensation in, in the process of that, there's uh, mind-generated sensations that, that begin to stand in place of the normal sensations of touch and pressure and ache, achiness and things like that. Because once you get past them, there's no more aches and pains at all. Your body is completely free of all those sorts of distracting sensations. And in fact, is suffused with a very pleasant sensation instead. And I think that all is coming from the mind. And it happens when the normal processing, because of course your nerves are still, you know, your nerve endings are still sending sensations from, from a tight joint and from the pressure of your weight on your ankles and so forth. But it's now being it, it's being disregarded. The same thing uh, with the visual thing when the light comes. If uh, if some of your distracting thoughts have been in the form of visual images that arise, some of you have that. 
visual images that keep arising as you have distracting thoughts, memories, and things like that. Once that light comes and becomes strong, it pretty well ceases. There's no more visual imagery uh, in terms of uh, distractions. And so your, your single-pointedness becomes more developed uh, and uh, uh, the uh, calmness uh, and, and uh, clarity of, of your practice reflects that. Yes. Uh, I would like to continue the lunch, uh, the topic mm-hmm. regarding to using what to mention more about ourselves. Well, that was actually from last night's topic that I was going to talk about more about myself. And I thought about that, and I thought yeah, I want to do that, but perhaps before I do, we should talk a little bit more about the emptiness of other things, the emptiness of phenomena, and what emptiness is in general. When we say not-self, we're talking about the emptiness of self. And as we were talking last night, our experience is made up of the really uh, sensations and mental objects that arise. And um, I pointed out to you using this little cushion as an example that our perceptions, the perceptions that we normally uh, experience, uh, are really quite removed from the actual cause of those perceptions. In other words, Whatever the nature is of the interface between your mind and the brain as a physical organ, that's rather hard to say very much about. But it is the case, definitely, that the only information that your brain has ever received from the time that you were conceived in your mother's womb until this moment is nerve impulses. That is absolutely the only information that your brain has ever received. And so your entire view and understanding of uh, everything outside of your mind is a construct of your mind based on those sensations in order to explain those sensations and to make sense of them. You understand what I'm saying? So, you know, and, and, to, uh, and an analogy would be that if you could imagine a person that came into existence in a completely sealed chamber and uh, the walls are covered with blinking lights, you know, we use the blinking lights maybe as, a, as a, uh, an analogy for the nerve impulses that are coming in. And their job is to figure out what's going on outside the sealed chamber that causes some lights to blink at some time and others not to blink at, at other times. You know, that's essentially the kind of thing that your mind did as an infant. Of course, with some inherited, uh, uh, some inherited predispositions to help it along. But you, you see that, I, I just want you to grasp the degree to which your experience is separated from whatever the actual reality is that you think you know. 
It's quite separated. Okay? And so, uh, one of the things that, uh, well, what we can say with, with certainty about that uh, is that to some degree or another, uh, things don't don't have the nature that our mind projects on them. So it's sort of an open question to begin with. How good a representation uh, is the is what our minds has made up of whatever the reality is outside there, and and it may be an open question, but because of the things that have been discovered in the physical sciences and the material sciences over the last century, we can say with great confidence that they're not at all the way that we picture them. Interesting thing is that Buddhist philosophers thousands of years ago managed to figure out through the use of logic that they really couldn't be the way that we imagine them to be, which I find very interesting. And some of the conclusions that they came to have been verified to a great degree by modern physics. You know, we see a world made up of solid objects. Just a very, very simple example that we consider something like the metal that this is made of to be very solid, yet uh, it's been established that it is uh, 99 point, you know, who knows how many more decimals after that percent, empty space in spite of its apparent solidity. And for a long time, we thought that this empty space was occupied by uh, particles that had uh, uh, certain dimensions among their properties. And uh, more and more, as scientists have tried to look and examine the nature of those particles, they find that even that is, uh, is, is not the case. Uh, and different theories, well, uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity basically said to us that the particles that we thought were substantial uh, things in and of themselves uh, appear to be nothing more than local curvatures of, of space-time. You know, uh, hard to wrap your uh, for the ordinary person to even wrap your mind around what does that mean? But that that particular uh, theory and the discoveries that uh, led to it and that came from it basically abolished the idea that uh, what was giving us its substantiality and its weight and everything else were particles like we imagined them to be. Uh, you know, and, and now uh, physicists are even suggesting that uh, a better description may be some extremely uh, minute string-like structure that uh, is simply vibrating at, at different frequencies and creating the illusion of matter. <laughs> anyway, the whole point is just that things are not what they appear to be. We take that as a starting point, that it's obvious that things are not what they appear to be, and we, can, we are free to hold different opinions about just how different or how similar they might be to the way they appear to be. But what I can point out to you, and what the, what the Buddha pointed out and taught very clearly, is that definitely 
when it comes to the most important features of the world and the reality that we live in, the most important features of it to us personally, they are not, they have no substantial nature from their own side of being the way they appear to be. That it is, that the experience that we're having is only a projection of our mind. Whatever else there may be behind that. And this is not a very difficult thing to grasp. Now when I say the most important thing, when it comes to something like this, how close my perception and your perception of this is to whatever gives rise to the sensations that we have as a result of its presence is not too important. And in terms of in, in terms of each of our individual inner worlds, you know, the construct that you have corresponding to this object may be quite different than mine. But that's not very important either. Because for all practical purposes, we've never had a problem between us uh, in communicating and dealing with simple objects like this. And we can talk about them and use them and everything else. You know. So how how different your ideas of it are from my ideas and how different all of our ideas are from whatever it is that gives rise to the sensation, that's not too important. But as soon as things start to get more complicated than this, then it, uh, it becomes very important. Um, a human being is a fairly complicated object that we encounter. And your concept of a given person and my concept of a given person are almost guaranteed to be so different that uh, if, if we could somehow project them side by side, we, we would both be amazed that we were even talking about the same person. My concept of who I am and each of your concepts, totally different. I am empty in that regard. I'm, it's imp- my nature is not what I perceive myself to be, nor is it what any of you perceive me to be. And who knows what it actually is. Complicated things. Why is there so much diversity of opinion and disagreement in the world? It's because at the level of more complex things, everything is empty of having a substantial nature of being the way any particular person sees it. You see what I'm saying? That's the essence of emptiness right there. Uh, And so, of course, we very often fail to recognize that, and, you know, I'm right, and of course the rest of you are wrong, right? That's how we approach it. And, and we, will, we will argue and dispute uh, the actual nature of things, whereas all that we have access to is our own mental projections. But the reason that this is so important is that amongst the most complicated situations, or most complicated objects of perception that you have, are the actual situations you find yourself in from moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day. And 
These situations may make you happy or they may make you miserable. And you have all kinds of judgments about them. And we all want to be happy and we all want not to be miserable. So the fact that the situation that you find yourself in at any given moment is empty of any nature from its own side of being the way you perceive it, and it is only a projection of your mind, becomes extremely important. Right? Didn't follow that? That's oh, the most important thing. How could I have lost you? All right. Um, so, the two, the two of us, any two of us, were, if we could find ourselves in a series of different situations, we could stand side by side, and I might say, isn't this wonderful? And you might say, it's the worst thing I ever saw in my life. And you might be really happy, and I might be really suffering. And we'd be in the same situation. We see this all the time, do we not? Different people have totally different experiences in the same place and at the same time. The experience that you have is determined by your own mind. When we come into the same place, there is an uncountable number of things that we can hear, smell, feel, uh, see, and we, our minds, will select only certain ones that we notice and focus on. And then, depending on our past experiences and our present state of mind, we will experience those things that our mind focuses on as good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, beautiful or ugly, so on and so forth. Your reality is and always has been a creation of your mind. And the most important thing about that is that you want to live in a reality that is 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 beautiful uh, and that is pleasant and happy. You want your personal reality to be one of happiness, right? Wrong view is that, well, some things make me happy and other things don't. So I have to do go out and change things out there so that I have the ones that make me happy and I can avoid the ones that don't. That's the wrong view that we normally function by. But if you understand the emptiness of everything, it's really, it's the other way around. The things out there, the happiness and unhappiness is not in the things out there. It's in your mind. And whether the reality that you find yourself in is the greatest world that you could possibly imagine, or an utter hell, is completely up to you. That is what emptiness is about. The emptiness of things. You create your own reality. You agree? Does everyone agree? Yes. Completely? You understand that? Well, this is this is why liberation is possible. 
realize that <laughs> the reality that you live in is mind created. It is empty of any nature of being the way you're experiencing it right now from its own side. So it's subject to change. Of course, that does not mean, and you know this, I don't need to tell you this, that doesn't mean that you can just decide to have it all different. It doesn't work that way. Then liberation is empty too. What's that? Liberation is empty too, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but now that's, that, is, that is a very subtle truth that uh, takes some penetrating into, but in fact it's absolutely true. But what we need to understand is that if it's my mind that's determining how I experience the circumstances that I find myself in, why is it doing it one way and not another? That's that's the important thing. Well, you program your mind. You know, we were talking last night that the five things that make up the person are the objects that they experience. And by objects, I mean sensations and mental objects. I don't mean uh, rocks and trees and, and people. I mean all of the different sensations out of which the mind makes rocks and trees and people. The mind makes the rocks and trees and people. What you experience is the sensations. And then you experience the rocks and trees and people that the mind made out of the sensations, okay? All right, so your experience consists of one whole category of things is the objects of your experience, mental objects and, uh, and sensations. And then there's the consciousness of the things that are experienced. And the consciousness is connected to the object by an act of perception. What, how you perceive that thing to be. You hear a sound, you perceive it as the call of a bird. That's just one example. But everything is like that. Whatever sensations you experience, they're perceived, you put a label on them, you conceptualize them, and then you, then you have, have that uh, concept that you generated, that idea. Your mind takes that as the object. And so that's how perception works, and that's what your perceptions are. So these are three of the things. The other two things that make you, up, make you up, in addition to the consciousness and the act of perception by which it interprets the objects that it finds, are feelings of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither neutral. And the last and final thing is what we call the mental formations. That's that vast store of ideas that you have built up since you were a child of the way things are. It was from the mental formations that you got the concept of bird to go with the sound. That's where the image of the bird, that's where the perception of the bird came from. Every single perception you have draws upon this accumulated mental formations. That's where it sources from. 
and from the time you were born or perhaps from the time you were conceived your mind has been accumulating and adding to this massive mental formations. This is the stuff your world is made of, is the mental formations. And it's constantly being modified. Every time you have a new experience, then that modifies the mental formations, adds something to it, cancels something out, or changes something in it. So every experience you have modifies the mental formations and so absolutely every experience you have is going to have some subtle influence or maybe a gross influence but at the very least a subtle influence on your future experiences it's going to determine the nature of your future perceptions right? you follow me with that? so so it's actually the experiences that we have in their cumulative totality which is that's the raw material the world is that your world is being made from which means that it is within those mental formations that lies the answer of why your mind creates the reality that it does if you are happy satisfied fulfilled it's because of the functioning of the mental formations that you've built up. Every experience you have includes not just the passive ones of what you see, but also the things that you do and the thoughts that arose that preceded your actions and the intentions behind those thoughts You are an active participant in, and of course you know this, you're an active participant in the unfolding of your life. So you are also an active participant in creating this massive mental formations that determines the nature of the experience that you have. And that the Buddha called karma, which means action, It was an idea that uh, he adapted from the Brahman. The the Brahmanical tradition saw uh, karma as being the proper performance of uh, magic rituals that sustained the world as it was, made sure that crops grew and that rain fell, and actually kept the gods alive so that they could uh, sacrifice to the gods and the gods would make sure that uh, village cows had lots of calves and things like that. And so the Buddha took that word karma and that concept and adapted it to this truth that we've just been discovering. And he said, when I say karma, I mean intention. Because it is the intentions that arise in your mind that lead to your thoughts and your speech and your action. And of course, that is what has produced this massive mental formations in the particular form that it is. So, if you are happy or unhappy, it is is the fruit, the result, of your accumulated karma in the form of all of those mental formations that determine the kind of experience you have.
That's changeable. You see, if you are a person who is fearful in the world, your mind has been conditioned to be fearful, to be afraid, to be timid. And every time emotion of fear arises and you identify with it and you generate intentions from it and actions and thoughts and the thoughts cycle through your mind, you are, this is a kind of habitual karma, you are reinforcing the karma to be a fearful person or an angry person. Every single time that you become angry or irritated or annoyed, you are programming yourself to be a person who is angry, irritated, annoyed. And over time, that will become more and more firmly fixed as a characteristic. But you can't change it. If you, if you cease to uh, uh, reinforce these negative karmas, these negative uh, uh, mental states and the intentions that are associated with them, and replace them with positive ones, you'll change the kind of person that you are. And you'll change the kind of experience that you have. So the emptiness of things in the world makes it possible for you to produce dramatic changes in the kind of person you are. The practice of virtue and the practice of the uh, uh, perfections, the paramitas, are a way of bringing this about. They give you a systematic framework in which to work. But simply being mindful of your own mental states is another way that you can do that. In one of the sutras the Buddha describes that when he was a bodhisattva before he became enlightened, he realized that his mental states and his intentions were of two kinds, wholesome and unwholesome. And those that were unwholesome consisted of thoughts that rose out of uh, greed, uh, hatred, and, and cruelty. And those that were wholesome arose out of generosity, uh, patience, and loving kindness. And so he set about, amongst other things, that when uh, he found unwholesome mental states were present, that he uh, did what he could to cause them to pass away and to prevent their arising again in the future. And uh, likewise with wholesome mental states, uh, when they were present, he tried to sustain them and keep them. And when they were absent, he tried to bring, bring about wholesome mental states. And this, as a matter of fact, is one part of the Eightfold Path of right effort. So the emptiness of things is what gives us what allows us to understand how karma works. And it also shows us where we have the power to change the nature of our life and the, and the nature of the kind of person that we are. So this, this is a very important and very valuable understanding. Now the idea of the emptiness of all these different things uh, does go deeper than this. And it has a, even a more profound uh, interpretation and significance. But uh, 
this I, I this I think uh, gives you a pretty good idea of the significance of emptiness. So does everyone know what emptiness is now? You heard this word? I know you spent any time at all in connection with Buddhist activities, you confronted the word emptiness. And it's often very difficult to grasp what is this emptiness anyway. And it is the absence of what in, in Buddhist philosophy is called an own nature or a self-nature. Uh, specifically, a self-nature of being the way that we perceive things to be. And it's because everything is empty that our actions can determine the kind of uh, the, the kind of existence that we find ourselves in. That through virtue, good fortune is attained. Well, we could go into, uh, and we we probably will at some point, go into other aspects of emptiness. Um, In terms of, there's there's three characteristics of all of our experience, of all of our phenomena, that the Buddha pointed out. And when we talk about insight, vipassana, this is what we're talking about, is understanding these. Um, insight into the three characteristics means understanding that everything is impermanent. Actually, that's not quite correct. Not only is everything impermanent, there are no things there is only impermanence. There is only change and flux. The second characteristic is emptiness. And emptiness has two aspects to it. The emptiness of phenomena, which we have just discussed, and the emptiness of self. And the third characteristic of our experience is suffering. And that since everything is impermanence and everything, including ourselves, is empty, that any time we cling or grasp to that which is impermanent and empty, we are guaranteed to experience suffering either immediately or at some time in the future. So that's the third characteristic, is, is the, uh, the unsatisfactoriness, the suffering, the dukkha of, of everything. Now, the second of these, the emptiness. In the Buddha's original teaching, he stressed the emptiness of self. So usually the way we see these three characteristics expressed is impermanence, not self, and dissatisfactoriness or suffering. And then it's stated that all all phenomena are without a self-nature. So it's really the not-selfness, it's the emptiness of everything. 
But he put it in terms of anatta, and atta means self or soul, because that is the most important emptiness, and that's actually the most difficult emptiness to grasp, to truly grasp. You've already grasped a pretty good idea intellectually of the emptiness of phenomena, right? If not before tonight, then through this conversation here, I believe you understand the emptiness of phenomena. And there are deeper levels of understanding which you could, uh, which we could uh, go to in that. And it's not the emptiness of phenomena is not so difficult to grasp as the emptiness of self, and the reason being. We can intellectually understand anatta, not self. But we have this feeling of the reality of our self-nature. And that overrides any intellectual analysis that we may carry out so that we can come to an intellectual conclusion that, well, yeah, there's not really any self here. But it doesn't make much change. So. That is why the emptiness of self is more difficult. It's also more important. Well, since we're talking about things being empty, what is important? But uh, maybe instead of important, I'll put it this way. The emptiness of self has results that manifest in terms of morality and compassion. The emptiness of phenomena is associated with wisdom, but understanding the emptiness of phenomena produces no morality and it produces no compassion. And I should probably explain why that is. You can understand that phenomena are empty, that the reality that you live in is mind-created. And that that won't have any effect at all on your desire to do anything and everything you can to make yourself happy and avoid your own unpleasantness. There's nothing about the emptiness of phenomena to change that tendency in you. And as a matter of fact, if everything's empty anyway, probably doesn't matter that much what I do, as long as I get away with it. Right? There is no morality in the knowledge of the emptiness of phenomena. There is wisdom in there, and there is understanding. And of course what that will eventually lead to is an understanding of the emptiness of self. The emptiness of self, on the other hand, leads to both morality, it inherently leads to morality, and to compassion. Uh, and the bell's going to ring in a couple of minutes, so we'll have to continue this discussion um, <clears throat> tomorrow. But before I do, i just point out to you that the problem, if you believe in self, even if you understand that everything else is empty, it's the same problem that here I am, and I'm the experiencer of pleasure and happiness, and the experiencer of pain and sorrow. And I am the center of my universe, and the most important 
thing that I have, and so I uh, have to deal with, and so I am going to seek to gratify this self. And there's no reason not to. So, pleasure and pain are going to arouse in me the natural responses, and these are conditioned into us, the natural response of desire and aversion. And when desire and aversion arise, I am going to generate intentions that, as well as I can see, intentions involving actions that will lead to fulfilling my desire. And uh, also, if I have an aversion to something, to uh, my actions will be directed towards destroying, eliminating, avoiding, in one way or another, taking myself out of the influence of that which I have aversion to. So as long as there is a self, then desire and aversion, craving, manifests without, without much in the way of limits. That we have the amount of altruism and natural love and compassion that we do is, uh, is wonderful. You know, it's, uh, it, it's almost surprising that we have any at all. But if you look at how we structure our lives, our society is based not on morality, on a lip service of morality, but we have police and courts for the purpose of simply making it more to my benefit not to steal your things than it is to steal your things. But if my not stealing your things is only for the sake of enhancing my well-being, there's no inherent difference than that between stealing your things to enhance my own well-being. So our system and our society isn't really based on a true morality. It's a system of logic and ration that says, well, if we all run around doing what we think is best for ourselves alone, there's going to be absolute chaos, uh, murder, mayhem, robbery, theft, nothing will be safe, nobody will be happy. As a matter of fact, that is the kind of thing that our societies have gone through many, many times, and it's the result of that that we've developed the social structures we have, which is to control our natural impulses. But discovering the emptiness of self gives rise to a true morality, much more fundamental morality or ethics. And it also gives rise to compassion. And we'll go into that more tomorrow night, but just the essence of it is that as soon as I'm not separate from you, you become important in a totally different way than you were before. Okay? So... I hope the things that I've talked to you about stimulate some questions and uh, your questions tomorrow night will stimulate further discussion. Okay, thank you very much. This is very good. I'm going to give you the next uh, 13 minutes to stretch and do some walking meditation. And then we'll come back together again. And I'm going to lead you you in a uh, loving-kindness meditation.